What I Didn't Learn on my PGCE podcast with your hosts Omar Mataza and Frankie Beaumont. We believe that the best advice out there is from teachers themselves. I don't know many teachers that aren't trying to get better and trying new experiences. It is hard to get teachers to engage in effective PD though, especially at the end of a super busy day. It's the last thing on your mind to want to go to a, an hour-long professional development session. Except, of course, your total PD nerds like me and Omar. It is important, though, because teaching is a highly skilled profession. You need to keep up with the latest trends and research to be effective in your job. So Omar and I have decided that we will do that for you. We will do the hard work, find out the most relevant facts and research, and share it with you here. Welcome to the third episode in the first series of the What I Didn't Learn on my PGCE podcast. Today we're delighted to welcome Bradley Bush from Inner Drive onto the podcast. Before we do, we'll just introduce him and talk about why he's a bit of a cult hero around our school. So this isn't the first time we've spoken to Bradley. Actually, it's the second time this week. As part of one of our internal professional development programs at our school, we were studying the Science of Learning 7-7 Studies Every Teacher Should Know book. And as part of another program, we listened to him on another podcast. So it's fair to say that we've had our fair exposure to him this academic year. Because I enjoyed the podcast and book so much, I tweeted him to say this. And Bradley actually reached out to say that he would love to speak at one of our school online conferences or at one of our book club meetings which is one of the fabulous things about social media, especially Twitter, and being able to engage with educators across the world. So since then, I've been pestering him to speak at conferences and at our book club, and now to come on this podcast. So one of the reasons why I chose to be part of the book club was to find out more about some of the studies that I've read about online in a bit more detail. It breaks it up into nice, easy, sizable chunks. So they talk about the study, give you a bit of an overview, the main findings, then it also talks about related research and then probably the most important part, implications within the classroom. Frankie was actually part of this book club as well. So Frankie, why did you choose to be part of it? Well, I've been really interested in study techniques and how we can improve student memory. I lead the inclusion department here at college, so I was actually looking for ideas to implement with the students that we work with. However, I was actually pleasantly surprised that there was much more to the book than just retrieval techniques. I really like that there were studies that focus on all areas that can impact the students' well-being and learning. It is very much a holistic view of student development. I also like the fact that there is limited text to read, lots of visuals, and you can read a study in less than five minutes, which is perfect for a, a busy life as a busy teacher. <laughs> that, that's all, that, that was one thing that took me by surprise before I ordered it. I didn't know what to expect really when I, uh, I placed the order because you couldn't see what it was like. Um, so I was thinking it was going to be page after page of um, text based upon research but no inside it's really easy and it lays it out to talk about the implications of classrooms related research and the main findings which is um, really good for a teacher and it's something that you could use and relate to in your day-to-day -day practice. I actually refer back to it quite often I have it on my uh, on my table filled with loads of post-it notes and I like to like <laughs> what's the word? Oh, say. Oh, pull out a fact. You, you're going to say whip it out. Whip, out, yeah. whip out a fact is what I was going to say. No, we won't be whipping anything out <laughs> on this podcast. Um, so just before we get Brad to introduce himself then, we'll just talk about the format of this show. So Frankie and I have picked a, a couple of studies. We said that we were going to pick two each, but we couldn't narrow it down to two. So we've picked a, a few studies each that we found the most interesting throughout the book club. And we're just going to have a bit of a Q&A and a discussion with Brad about these studies throughout the podcast. So let's waste no time then and welcome Brad onto the show. Thanks for having me on and I'm dying to know who came up with the name of the podcast because that's a genius uh, title you guys have. I'll um, take credit for that one. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> uh, um, so yeah, um, so yeah, my name's Bradley Bush. Uh, I'm a psychologist. Um, my company's called Inner Drive. As a company, we basically try to take psychological research and see how can we help people improve learning and performance. Uh, initially, we start in sport, uh, working with Premier League footballers. Before we made the switch over to education, because essentially what we found with our sports guys is we were just trying to help them become better learners. And so then we just kept coming back to all this research from educational psychology 
and just found it interesting that there's so much good research out there, but it's often just really so hard to access. Uh, people are busy or the researchers behind paywalls. So yeah, with the book, The Science of Learning, just wanted to make something that was easily digestible, um, teacher-friendly, uh, but hopefully has a, a few implications that can help guide practice as well. Excellent. Based on Frankie's feedback there, it looks like you've achieved all of those. Nailed it. Well done. <laughs> well, I, have to, I can't take much of the credit for that. So the running joke in our office is I wanted to write a full-on thesis on this stuff, uh, but my co-author, Edward, uh, he hates reading for the most part, um, and he wanted to do a cartoon. Um, and so we kind of struck a middle ground. Uh, and it's funny you talk about having just five minutes with the book, Frankie. Um, Edward always says he wanted to write a book that people could it could live in their toilet, basically. So you could just like dip in and out when you're on the loo, basically. Uh, and that, that was kind of the ethos of the book when we started. We didn't pitch it like that to our publisher, but that, that was definitely our intention. The toilet book. That's what I'll call it. Yeah, the toilet book. Actually, right, yeah. That, that's given me an idea for toilet PD. Because, toilet PD. There we go. That's, <laughs> let's see how that goes next year. Oh, yeah, might be quite niche, that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, I'll start then with uh, one of my favourite, interest, most interesting studies was about the emotions and achievement. So I've been doing quite a lot of research recently on looking at interventions at secondary school. There's a lot of uh, work out there and information about how to run relevant interventions at primary, but there's quite a, a lack in that area when it comes to secondary students. Um, so if a student's diagnosed with a, a learning difference in primary school, they've obviously gone through many interventions, likely to have a, you know, experienced quite a lot of failure because you, what we seem to do is just keep doing the same thing with them and hope that they make improvements but if they have a, a learning difference or a learning difficulty often they're not going to make that improvement. So one of our biggest barriers at secondary school is actually student self-esteem because they've experienced quite significant amount of failures as in their schooling so far they come to us and they are kind of turned off a little bit with education so I found this study quite interesting. So obviously student self-esteem is associated with anxiety and depression and academic stress which can significantly affect students quality of life and we have witnessed this in school we've got some students who are have such low self-esteem it's actually heartbreaking to talk to them and um, so I'm and obviously if a student is suffering from anxiety that also affects their working memory which makes it challenging to retain new information, recall previously learned information. So I was really interested to see your thoughts on this and how, how can we as a college or how can a teacher focus more on their emotions? And I, I believe that if there's a happy student and with the high self-esteem, then the achievement will then come. I was just wondering what your opinion was on that. Yeah, uh, it's, it's one of my favourite studies because... It was one of the ones when I read it, it was actually quite a steep learning curve for myself because I think I look back at my old practice and probably was doing stuff that I wouldn't do now in the sense of I used to believe, and I think it's quite a big belief in education still, that people think you take stuff like confidence on one side of the paper and you can draw a line and that kind of leads to success. So confidence or motivation or self-esteem. So if we can help improve those, we can help improve how successful our students will be. And what this study, and I used to do that, and you, so this leads to us doing these like motivational assemblies or these big speeches to help make people feel better. Yeah. And what this study suggests that actually the line goes both ways. So uh, well, as well as motivation and self-esteem and confidence leading to achievement, if we improve achievement, it'll also increase confidence and motivation and self-esteem. It's like the cycle. And so this really gets to the nub of, do we want to just develop their confidence? But actually, what we want to do is develop their competence as well. Because if we improve their competence, they'll become more confident and they'll develop that more self-esteem. And so it's a little chicken and egg sort of scenario of which one comes first. And the truth is you do both. Yeah. So we need to teach them strategies to develop their well-being and self-esteem and confidence. But we also need to set up our lessons in a way that they experience success and we build up gradually and that leads to a lot of the research around scaffolding, um, links to cognitive load theory about not overloading that working memory because you want to build up that success and that knowledge. And that's why I quite like that study is because before that, I didn't think of 
self-esteem and success is bi-directional. I thought it was only self-esteem led to self-success. Uh, Whereas I think when I read that study, it was a good reflection of we can work on both their confidence, their confidence and their competence, which gives me then two avenues to go down to help improve those students as opposed to just the one intervention, as it were. Yeah, so I took this on board and uh, in- implemented some intervention with um, some of our Year 10 students. And um, it was very straightforward and nothing, nothing groundbreaking, but we did find that it worked. So we got them to choose one subject, a option subject, so not one of the core subjects, one of the ones they've chosen, and to just give themselves one target in that to work towards. And we, we, we met with them weekly. Uh, we evaluated how close they are to meeting that target. And um, it was actually, we had such an amazing result from that. Um, they got that small win, they met yeah. that target, and then from that, their confidence increased, and yeah. then they were more likely to work, and then it was, it was, you know, it was a snowball effect, and it was such a small thing that we did, um, but it had such a, a huge impact, so I found that very interesting, and, and something I think we could develop further in the college, because we have got quite a lot of students at the moment, with everything that's going on, who are suffering from anxiety and low self-esteem, so... I mean, and it makes sense. Why would you be confident or have high self-esteem if you've only experienced failure? Like, no amount of self-talk is going to overcome that evidence and proof that you've accumulated over the years. Whereas someone once described to me, each time you have success, it's like a deposit into, like, your confidence or self-esteem that you can withdraw on later because you've got that that bank of evidence there. Have you seen an increase, then, in the number of students that come to you, Frankie, with um, anxiety? Yeah, so it's been, especially in the last term, we've had um, a significant number of students who've now been added onto our register with anxiety concerns. Because yeah. I know when I was at school, it wasn't really a thing, and I'm sure that'll be the same for both you, Brad, and Frankie, really, that uh, people didn't really get diagnosed as such with anxiety or go to a counsellor or go to see school about having anxiety. They just had to put up with it. So um, there's place, there's schools have got counsellors nowadays that they've put in place. They've got a excellent inclusion departments that they've helped students cope more with that. Um, do you do a lot of work with that, Brad, to do with students with anxiety at all? Yeah. Um, so we, we often we talk about a lot more, I guess, about like stress, um, I, I think. So it's a really interesting to talk language because anxiety is a diagnosable thing that you that you know your your doctor can diagnose you and can get medication and treatment for uh and i'm a big believer that a little bit of stress and pressure is actually a really good thing to experience uh and so we often try and work with people to try and find that sweet spot of you do need a bit of stress and pressure to perform at your best but when it becomes overwhelming and then becomes to anxiety that's when it becomes a real concern and i think it is growing um I think the dynamic in education is changing a bit in terms of parental expectations, uh, the pressure parents put on schools, um, the pressure that students put on themselves with social media as their main form of comparison. Um, yeah, I, I, I think it's a real, it's a real growing concern and a real area to, that we have to be really mindful of. So we just need to get our students to have small successes on a regular basis, and hopefully. Uh, we'll I mean, it would, it, 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 would, it would definitely help. And it sounds counterintuitive that to help those with, say, stress or anxiety or low self-esteem, you don't talk about necessarily all the time the self-esteem and the stress and the anxiety. We focus on getting them better at the task and then that way they'll experience less anxiety or low self-esteem because they experience less failure. Yeah. Uh, but, of course, you should do both. I, like, is, I, like, I wouldn't want to ever suggest we don't address the other issues as well. Okay, thank you. Ah, excellent. So I'm going to talk about a study then that's probably your most talked about study and maybe a reason why it's study number one in the book. Uh, it's the one about memory. So um, I know that you've done a lot of, on this and that you tweet a lot about uh, this study especially. So that's why I want to talk a little bit about this. Um, so just to sum it up for people that have not read it, this talks about the techniques which were rated as being effective and not helpful as well for improving long-term memory. So the ones that were found to be um, 
very effective for improving long-term memory were retrieval practice and distributed practice and the ones that were found not to be very helpful were highlighting and underlining and rereading. So the first thing I want to ask you Brad about this one is why do you think then that students always default to underlining or rereading when it comes to saying let's revise? Uh, I think the biggest reason is as human beings, and this is true for students as well as adults, we tend to do what we like and what we prefer as opposed to what's best for us. So rereading and highlighting are really safe ways in the student's mind to learn something because you can kind of do it on autopilot. You never really have to confront what you do and don't know. Um, often it gives the illusion of learning because you get to say, look how many pages I've read or look how many things I've highlighted. Um, so it looks like learning's taken place. Um, but the truth is with memory, the stuff that makes you think hard and you struggle with, that's the stuff that you're more likely to remember. And, you know, I always kind of half joked, for example, like my toddler, he likes and prefers eating chocolate for breakfast, but just because that's what he likes doesn't mean that's what's best for him. And I think the same thing happens with learning and studying is we have to sometimes get students in this sort of uncomfortable area where they're wrestling and grappling with ideas and sometimes having to stretch themselves um, and confront what they do and don't know for learning to take place. And those sort of processes don't happen when you can just skim read or when you can just highlight in 23 different colours and it looks pretty but actually it doesn't lead to, to learning. So I think it's safe, I think it's easy and you can do it on autopilot. So I understand why students like it. Well, it's interesting it the retrieval practice is you're basically identifying things you don't know, aren't you? So you're identifying the gaps in your knowledge. Whereas when you're highlighting, yeah. underlining, you're like you're getting an immediate gratification of oh, I remember this. So it's a yeah. it's a nice uh, a nice technique, isn't it? Yeah. And if you go back to what you were saying earlier about students with low self esteem, yeah, confronting what you don't know if you don't know a lot of stuff. Like, who wants to go do an activity where you're about to get proof that you're not as smart as you want to think you are? Like, so it's totally understandable. Um, the best way someone described retrieval practice to me, and I love this, is stuff like quizzing and retrieval practice doesn't assess your knowledge. It accelerates it. And so a lot of students are apprehensive about it because they think, if I do this quiz and I do badly in it, that will prove that I'm not smart or I don't know a lot. But the quiz and the test... It's part of the learning. It isn't the assessment of the learning. It's actually what accelerates that learning. Um, so it's the vehicle, actually, for getting better. The teachers that are out there listening to this, um, how, can they how can they embed retrieval practice into their lessons? Sure. So retrieval practice, like anything that helps students generate an answer to a question. So, for example, I look back at my early practice and I spent the first five minutes, which sometimes was 10% of the lesson, just getting people to write down the lesson outcomes or learning objectives. Whereas now I get students to do a quiz, for example, at the start to get them having to come up with an answer. Uh, likewise, at the end, my summary slides were terrible. I used to just repeat what we've said in the lesson. Whereas now I'll do a quiz to see how much they remember from the lesson. I've heard of some schools and colleges do what they call Thinking Thursday, which is for every lesson across every subject on a Thursday, the first five minutes will be a quiz on something the students did two or three weeks ago so i'm not even expecting you to get all of this stuff right but instead it's this, it's this keeping it bubbling away um generating answers and it can be verbal q a it can be write down everything you remember in, the, uh, in 60 seconds from the lesson it could be multiple choice quizzes which are brilliant because you can get the students to mark their own so it doesn't increase teacher workload it's anything that generates answers really um yeah. and about and that low stakes environment yeah. isn't it it's about having that low stakes pressures off the students but they're having to retrieve that knowledge um just linking back to that brad um what recommendations would you make for teachers of practical subjects then i know that you said you could do a little q a with them but are there any other strategies for teachers of practical subjects just take pe for example that they could use yeah, um, so there's a nice uh, there's a nice area of research called elaborative interrogation, which is linked to retrieval practice, which is getting people to give more depth and detail to their answer. So you give an answer and you go, yeah, but why would you do that? When would you not do that? Why would you do this in this situation but not that situation? All of these are getting people to come up with answers, 
um, which is a form of retrieval practice. And I think you can do those for the practical subjects because it's the concept and the decision making that you're really quizzing. But you can also do this for the practical skills of let's MPE practice this skill. Can we practice it under pressure? Uh, can you do it with a time constraint on you? All of these things, you're still generating an answer. The answer might be the skill itself, but you're still having to do something as opposed to it just happening to you. Yeah, awesome. Right, Frankie, next study then. Okay, so I was really interested in the teacher expectation study. Um, so I've been quite interested in this and been thinking about it recently quite a lot. Um it makes sense, obviously, if your teacher has high expectations of you, you'll you'll hopefully rise to them. And I'm interested when it comes to so like the labelling theory, um, when talking about our neurodiverse students, the movement now is to move away from labels and categories, um, for many reasons. Um, but one of them being is that all brains are on a continuum of competence, um, and many learning differences have comorbid features anyway. Um, so labels can be useful because they allow the student to access the support that they require but a lot of the labels given have a very negative connotation. So um, the, other, the other day I actually Googled what dys means, as in dyslexia, dyscalculia, and it, and it just came up with bad. So <laughs> I don't think that's very, you know, very nice for a student to have that label on them. Um, and I know that psychologists are actually starting to move away from these labels and focusing more on using the terms specific learning difficulty in literacy or specific learning difficulty in written expression. So do you think we should start focusing on profiling the students' strengths and areas of difficulty rather than focusing on the label? I often, it might be a, a sweeping generalisation, but I do believe that when you look at your class list and you see dyslexia, dyscalculia, dysgraphia, um, I think often teachers immediately lower their expectations of that child. Um, yeah. it's, a, it's a hard one. I don't really know the answer to it, but I was just wondering what your ideas would be on that? Uh, it is a really hard one. Um, and it sounds like a slightly sitting on the fence sort of answer. Um, <laughs> but it's a double-edged sword for me. Yeah. Is On one hand, uh, knowing my students' strengths and weaknesses is a really good thing. Um, if they have a diagnosis, they, as you said, they can access support that they need. And also, in certain laws, like certain groups and disabilities are protected by law so like it is important that we don't lose those labels completely mm. and on the flip side as you say does it subconsciously lower expectations uh take dyslexia as an example i've heard a whole range of behaviors being excused because of dyslexia uh and that's not to say that there aren't serious issues with people who do have dyslexia but like the worry is then it becomes they can't do X because they have Y. Yeah. Um, and I think that is a real issue. And that's why this sort of expectations is important. I think for me, when I've read the research around expectations, I think it's really important to focus that high expectations for me isn't necessarily high expectations around outcomes like grades. It's more about high expectations around attitude towards learning, towards habits and towards behaviours. Now, clearly, some people may struggle with some of those behaviours more than others. But I think if we have these high expectations that everyone can improve, everyone can learn, everyone can get better. Mm -hmm. So if that's always the starting point. That's what high expectations mean. And I think that can sit hand in hand with some labels if those labels are used in a helpful and productive manner. Um, so, yeah, kind of sitting on the fence in terms of I can see both sides. And it's like one of these things. It's, it's all about the art of how it gets implemented uh, and knowing your students, I guess. Absolutely. So, how, how, how does that sound? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I cut you off then. Um, so how would, no. you, how would you say to a teacher, um, they've got a student who's just joined their class, who has a history of negative behaviours, um, they've joined a class, it's hard not to then suddenly think, oh, I've got so-and-so, and lower your expectations of them because of their past behaviours at school. Yeah. What tips would you give that teacher and how to help that child to meet your high expectations? Yeah, uh, it partly, I think, comes back to what we were saying before, is you have those high expectations, but you have to scaffold the support. Yeah. Um, and so we have to build up incrementally and have them experience success and build up now having them experience success and 
shouldn't be confused with lowering the bar of expectation. So we're not dumbing down. It's done as part of the process to build people up. Um, I read a great report once that said when people differentiate or deal with, in inverted commas, challenging students or challenging behaviour, we don't lower the bar of expectations. You keep that bar high, but what you do vary is the level of support. Mm -hmm. So I believe everyone in my class can achieve X, but you, Frankie, might need extra support one-on-one with me, uh, whereas you might not need any uh, extra support. But I don't lower the bar. I just vary the range of support because I think the second we lower that bar of expectations, uh, we're kind of dooming some students to mediocrity because they take their sense of their abilities often from the adults in the room. And if we're giving the perception that they can't achieve, I think they'll quite quickly internalise that. Yeah, I agree. So giving them uh, like a small behaviour targets to kind of meet over a term to meet, like to slowly work their way up to that, that ultimate expectation. Yes. Yes, but it's not just the behaviour target, it's the knowing how I'm going to do that behaviour. Like, So it's not just the, the outcome of it is I sit quietly for half an hour. Let's say that's that's the, the behaviour target over the course of the term. But I need to know the range of strategies of how to do that. Mm. Um, and that's the part where the support needs to come in. is isn't so much monitoring, okay, you sat for 12 minutes last week, let's say for 14 minutes. It's how do we get that extra two? What are you going to do at 12 minutes when you start to get restless that's the support i think that's the key as opposed to just the outcome and the target so giving them the strategies and the techniques that they can implement themselves to to get there that's the part yeah, yeah. absolutely that, that's what i'd say yeah for sure okay that's great thank you Brilliant. so my next one really is about electronic note-taking and that's study 72 within the book um Recently, over the last 18 months, there's no thing other than technology, really, that teachers have upskilled themselves more on. Um, everybody's had to do that, teachers, students, parents alike as well. Um, and this is it's not going away. It's going to be part and part of our day-to-day life, even more so than now on. So, uh, for example, one thing that I hope stays within schools are electronic parents' evenings and e-parents' evenings. Oh, yeah, they're brilliant. Yeah, so you can do it from the comfort <laughs> of your own house. Sat in bed with a cup of tea. <laughs> shirt on the top pyjamas on the bottom <laughs> is that the parents or the teachers <laughs> well both probably both, yeah. so, yeah. uh, there's really good things about technology and stuff that should be here to stay and a lot of schools now are implementing a, a bring your own device policy um, I know that we're doing a, we've got a, a showed up one from next academic year as well and this leads us on to this study really electronic note taken in, in here it talks about the main findings that say that uh, Students that took notes with a laptop performed worse when they had to answer conceptual application questions and those who took notes on their laptop wrote up to 30% more words than those that didn't, which led to shallower learning. So I just want to get your thoughts on this, uh, Brad, really, about electronic note-taking. I know that there are pros and cons for it, but uh, from your point of view, really, what can you just sum up to the listeners, really, about electronic note-taking? Sure. So I think, uh, I guess it's important to acknowledge, as you say, like this is part of the world we live in now uh, and they are here to stay. And the last few months has been essential technology in education. So like I'm not anti-technology in education in any way, shape or form. If I start with the pros, uh, electronic note-taking, you can access information that we, at your fingertips that you couldn't before. So there's a wide range of teaching applications that we can use with electronic devices. And I also like the idea of, it's easier to keep a clean record of these notes as opposed to when they're handwritten, they get stuffed in your bag and two weeks later they're dogged and you can't even make sense of them. That study didn't even look at this side of things. So it's important to acknowledge there are some real benefits of it. The downsides, which this study looked at, and it hasn't always been replicated. So this stuff is still up for grabs, but they did find, as you say, you take much more notes when you do electronically. And that's because, people can type faster than they can handwrite. And because they can type faster, they feel, because I can, I should. And so I should write down everything you say. And the problem with that is, at least this shallow learning, things are just taken verbatim, and you don't do any cognitive processing as the student about what's being said, because you're just parroting it down on your your laptop. Um, 
So I think that is a real concern because we do want students wrestling with ideas and concepts as part of their note taking. Um, I think if they are here to stay, the more we can educate students about this. Like, what does good note taking look like? Because more isn't better, always better. I think it's a really important part to look at. Um, There's been some related research that shows summary notes are actually more beneficial than ongoing notes during the lesson. So I'm going to talk for 10 minutes. Don't worry about typing everything down. Really listen and think about the discussion we're having. And then after 10 minutes, I'm going to give you three minutes to jot down every uh, the, the key parts. That might be a good way, as opposed to this constant trying to multitask of typing and listening. Um, so I think there are some pros. Uh, there are some cons. We haven't even mentioned the price. Uh, with any with any educational intervention, there should be a time versus learning debate, and there should be a cost versus learning debate. Um, so I think there's all stuff to weigh up. I think if a school has a clear policy and the teachers are confident in acting that policy, then it can be a force for good. But it's one of those things that left to people's own devices, people just tend to, with note taking, write down everything they hear. And that actually doesn't lead to long-term memory and learning. I think that's really interesting because I don't think I've ever been taught how to take notes. And I, I'm one of those people who, if I'm watching something or listening to something, I just start frantically writing everything down. And then yeah. I, I look at it and I'm like, I don't even understand what I've written because you're not actually processing anything the person is saying. So that's something that we probably just need to implement as a college, mm. is teaching students how to effectively note-take because I'm pretty sure... No one actually knows. I mean, were you taught? I was so never, like, yeah, I was like, never taught uh, note-taking either. Yeah. Like, as a very rough rule of thumb, if I'm oversimplifying, the two things you want to take notes on are what's the key information that I might need to remember at a later date? Like, that's quite handy. And what personal thoughts or connections does this information generate for me? So when you're talking your lesson, and I think, oh, I can see how this relates to what we were doing three weeks ago, that's something I, I, I want you to write down. Mm. Uh not necessarily just the content of the lesson. So it's what do you need to remember and what links does it help you make? Uh, that's the starting point, as opposed to just write down everything I've said. Yeah, that's interesting. Because you'll find that actually they won't be listening, will they, at all? They'll just be typing away. For sure. Frantically okay. typing away. So I think we've got time to discuss one more study, really. And I'll be a gentleman and let Frankie choose the study of her choice. Um, the last one to discuss. You, mobile phones or streaming? Oh, they're both really good, aren't they? We'll let Brad choose. Brad, you choose mobile phones or streaming. I, I tell you what, uh, let's do streaming. And if I'm really cheeky, I might squeeze in my thoughts on mobile phones before the end of the podcast. How's that? <laughs> Go on then. Um, so interestingly, your. Um, the streaming was saying that anyone put in a bottom set generally performed worse than students who weren't streamed and students who were put in a, a top set did better generally. So I was first of all interested in like the, the controls in that experiment. Obviously, there's so many other implications that could affect those results. Did they not do as bad because, oh sorry, did the students not do as well because they're in the bottom set, because they're in the bottom set for a reason? Um, that's what I was trying to work out, and there's other other things that could affect their um, the outcomes of their ability. So I was just trying to find out a little bit more about that study. Um, yeah, and it's one of the hardest parts of education research is you can't really do what we call randomised control trials oh. because you can't take the same person and give them two different experiences. Often you'll know if you're in the bottom set. It's one of these things that it's really difficult, and that's why the research and streaming is really divided. Yeah. You can pick your research if you wanted to make your argument pro or against streaming one way or the other. So it is a really difficult thing to come to a clear conclusion on because there's always going to be, as you say, margins for errors or unknowns uh, within it. So I would always say any research on streaming should be taken with a pinch of salt or an understanding it's never... Com- uh, showing the full picture, it might just give a glimpse or a guideline. What I think this study was highlighting is it's two main factors. I think if you're in the bottom set, for example, mm. one is the concept of like kind of emotional contagion. So like we learn other people's habits and behaviours by spending time with them, and if you're surrounded by people who 
let's say, really value education, believe they can improve and get better, want to work hard, which might be a hallmark of a top set often, you often get caught up in that if you're surrounded by those people. Where if you're not, because you're in a bottom set, you might pick up bad habits. Mm. And the other thing it links to is what we mentioned earlier is around teacher expectations. Yeah. Uh, we know that when people are often placed in a lower set, the temptation may be to lower our expectations. Um, they take different exams often uh, because they have a certain limit. And therefore, we might be less likely to ask them challenging questions, stretching them. Uh, so the combination of the impact on peers and teachers on what that does to an individual's mindset and self-esteem and self-beliefs could be a factor. Um, yeah, but, but again, yeah, yeah. if they've been put in a bottom set throughout the whole of school, the ceiling for them has basically been lowered, hasn't it? And, you know, there's good, there's good things, there's good points. I mean, they might prefer working in a smaller group with less pressure, um, but however, like you said, it's uh, there's nothing to really aspire to all the time, you know, like the sure, like, effect that you've spoken about before. Yeah, and so I'm not anti-streaming, especially if streaming is done with high expectations, we're going to challenge and stretch our students. They know that they can move between sets or streams mm. based on their development, I think it's quite an important part. Um, but it's one of those things that just has to be, I think, quite carefully managed because there is a potential downside that's good to be aware of. In my opinion, I actually think the most important part of streaming is your, what I don't always think is done, but you could effectively match your teacher's skill strengths to the set. So you've got those teachers who are really good at the, the high flyers and the, you know, pushing them higher and don't always explain concepts as, break concepts down into such smaller chunks because they kind of expect students to know. And then you've got other teachers whose demeanour and skill set is actually perfect for learners who are have low self-esteem or are struggling with a, with a, with a topic. So rather than streaming the, the children, you almost need to stream your, your teachers to match, yeah. to match the, the kind of abilities and the, and the strengths and weaknesses within that set. And I think that would have a huge impact. Right. And it's interesting because that hardly ever gets talked about. Yeah. Uh, and, and yet that sounds like quite sensible, logical, and you can see how that would be beneficial. Uh, just being from my own experience, when I was at school, I'll take PE as an example, the top set in PE, like the first team essentially is the top set, right? They got the best teacher for the best coach, and the B team got the second best coach, and like the team who were like the E team got the person who didn't really want to be a coach at all, but was kind of filling in. And you kind of go, but those are the students who need their expert teacher the most, because... Yeah. They're the ones who haven't mastered the skills, so they need more coaching, if anything. Uh, so, yes, that's why I'm not anti-streaming if it's done, what I'd call, like, intelligently, what, what you're describing. Yeah. Because yeah. you're right, so often they'll put the best the best teachers on the top set, yeah, and actually absolutely. they should be on the, uh, I don't know, my, my opinion, the, the, the low ability sets. But, yeah. but that also taps into each school or college has their own ethos. Mm. So some of them, they might have a real push in the last two years based on previous stuff that they need to challenge their high-achieving students more. And so that might then affect who you go for, uh, whereas others, it might be a case of we need to be more inclusive and, and raise the floor higher. Uh, so that might lead to differences. So it kind of depends on... There is no neat off-the-package, off-the-shelf answer. It depends on the school culture and the school and college needs. So we've we've got no conclusion from that, but uh, there's lots of interesting chat. Now. But, but it's interesting though. Yeah, yeah. I, in, in our book club, that proved one of the most interesting yeah. ones, really, because we had uh, we had teachers from core subjects and then option subjects, for example. So me being an option subject, I've never had uh, taught a setted class or a streamed class, as we call it here. Um, but then we've had like the science teachers in the room that are used to teaching these streamed classes. So um, it proved very interesting conversations within that book. But, but, but that's the point of what research should be. Mm. Like you shouldn't be aiming to get an answer from a research paper. You should be aiming to have staff discussions and debates that work for you in your context. And that's how these studies should be used as let's debate this stuff and compare our experiences as opposed to the study said we should do this and then let's just completely adopt that without any critical thinking yeah no that's brilliant brad thanks for that um so the next thing then that we want to talk about is 
your top three studies then. So just in a couple of minutes, uh, can you sum up to us what your top three studies are that teachers should know that are within the book and why, please? Okay, uh, so my first favourite study, I think, is the one about all the different learning strategies because, for me, that was a gateway research into, like, I read that study about these strategies are better than others, but then I wanted to read why each of those strategies were and why some weren't as good. So it kind of that's like a beginner's guide. It kind of opens up the door to all future research. And the reason I love that was I just got so frustrated when I used to teach around, I taught you this last week and yet you've already forgotten it. So why were my students forgetting stuff that I'd, I feel I taught them? And the difference between I've taught it but you haven't learnt it that study kind of shows some of the reasons why, uh, I think. So I love the ones around different learning strategies. Um, I love the research on resilience. I think resilience is becoming such a buzzword almost in education that it's easy to move, forget what the research says about it. Um, one of my favourite studies in the book talks about to create resilient environments, it needs to be both high challenge and high support. Uh and I like that because that's about the environment that you create. And each teacher creates their own environment in their classroom. And so you can say, how much am I stretching my students and how much am I supporting them? And again, I look back at my old practice and I think, I would often accept my students' first answer and not their best answer. So I could just keep going with the flow of the lesson because I didn't want that awkward silence. But what I was really doing was lowering my level of challenge that I was giving to them. So I love that resilience one. And then the last one, just because I promised you I was mention it, um, I love the stuff on mobile phones. It's a huge issue here in the UK. I think it's a huge issue worldwide. We know France has banned mobile phones in law from schools. Um, I would go so far as to say, I think mobile phones, smartphones especially, are the worst thing to happen in education in the last 10 years. Uh, we know research shows that students who are on their phones more, which is separate to electronic note-taking, we should know, yeah. but like phones, students who are on their phones more get way worse grades. Uh, this is especially true for the struggling students. Um, and this has been from research all over the world, and it's one of the studies in the book. Um, we know there's a well-being, often implication for being on your phone too much, mm -hmm. with feel missing out, stress, cyberbullying. And then you've also got the safeguarding issues that comes with every teenager having a, a camera, basically, on their phone and being able to access material that's for adults, not for children, within school. So with all these things, it's not to say you can't use mobile phones well in school, but if I was designing a policy, I want to make sure I'm confident that there's a learning gain to be had. And I think most of the time you actually get a learning loss with phones, um, and I know some people say you shouldn't ban stuff because you have to teach people how to use them. But schools ban stuff all the time. Like, we don't let students smoke in school. We don't let students drink. And, like, we ban drugs as a society. Like, so just to say we should expose people to stuff more as a child so they can use it well later, I think it's a really misguided view of, of this sort of stuff. Right. Um, I agree with that. So that's why as an adult... I mean, you'd hope that I have a bit more self-control, but I, I'm, I find that I'm so distracted if my phone's on my desk, um, especially if I'm tired. I have to actually sometimes physically lock my phone away. Um, I'll look at things, I'll reread things, I'll recheck things, and sometimes I don't even know that I'm doing it. So yeah. as me as a, an adult, I can't really control myself with my phone. <laughs> um, if a student's I'm like, I'm, I'm, it, you know. Right. And we know from the cognitive architecture of teenage brains, yeah. they struggle more with self-control. Exactly. So why would you give them the most possible distracting device at a time when they have the least self-control? And also, I think we should stop calling them mobile phones. Like, they're not making phone calls with these things. <laughs> they're I'm... social... So they're social when did you media. last make a phone call on your phone? Yeah. I, I avoid <laughs> phone calls. So. It's gaming. Yeah. Uh, at worst, it's betting and pornography. Like... They don't make phone calls with these things, so like we need to stop calling them phones because that kind of mis misviews what they actually are and how they're actually being used. Bring back the Nokia thirty three ten, I say. Where <laughs> no, the only distraction is snake. I say that. So when I was at school, the Nokia thirty three ten, when I was in about year nine or ten, so about fourteen or so, had just come out. So I was the first generation of phones, like everyone having their own phone at about fifteen. I spent hours playing that game Snake. I don't yeah. know if you remember that game. <laughs> 
and that's the worst game in the world, and yet that still distracted me. So now, how are they possibly meant to cope? It's just not going to happen, really. I know. And those group WhatsApps have a lot to answer for, don't they? Like you, you lo- don't look at your phone for thirty seconds, and you look at it again, and there's fifty messages, and you're like, "What? Where did they come from?" Uh, and especially for teenagers, there's a growing trend on both Instagram and WhatsApp in your in the group chat to be. Who can be the last one to send a message at night wins, like, the game? Oh, my God. So they're all egging each other on, and it just gets more and more. Um, the best thing parents can do, if you're going to do one thing as a parent, is just no phones in the bedroom. Uh, absolutely non-negotiable. Um, and it wouldn't be popular, but, again, it comes down to what people like isn't often what's best for them. Yeah. Um, and that's why they need teachers and parents to kind of make that decision for them. Okay, that's interesting. So what would you say? So we like to always want someone to take away from this some top tips. So if there's a new teacher listening or any teacher or just anyone listening who works in the education system, what would your three top tips be for them? Three top tips. Put me on the spot. Um, Okay, number one, I'd say, is it's this power of high expectations. Uh, Someone once described it to me as, no one rises to low expectations. Uh, and I think that is absolutely key. So everything's underpinned by a culture of improvement, development, learning, and these high expectations. Because once you have that, you go into your classroom with these high expectations. The next area you then go into is how do we then help them meet these high expectations? But it all starts with those high expectations. So that, I'd say, would be number one um, for me. Uh, number two, I would say... Students remember more when they think hard about stuff. So the more we can get them thinking hard, the better, which is why this retrieval practice stuff really helps, is generating answers to questions. doesn't have to be formal. Definitely shouldn't be under stress or any form of judgment or assessment. But the more I can get you doing the thinking, uh, the better. Uh, And then I think the last one uh, I think I'd go for is, we haven't talked about it too much in this session, but like eventually the student needs to be doing more of the work than the teacher yeah. ultimately because they need to learn how to manage their emotions and they need to learn how to revise and they need to learn how to motivate themselves because ultimately they're the constant in their life. We can't be always pushing them. But for that to happen, we have to help them develop these skills. And I think this concept, I'm finding the areas around scaffolding and building up and experiencing success bit by bit, that is actually fundamental because I think when I started teaching, I used to always think every lesson had to be new and I had to like always be more engaging and do new content. Was actually, I think, solidifying that information, making sure they've got that firm base, repeating content so they've overlearned it long term then allows a firm foundation for that progress to be built on. Okay, thanks, Brad. They are useful tips. I'm going to write them down myself. <laughs> really are. Um... So just before we go then, so Brad, you've got a new book out at the minute. We've read about the 77 studies that every teacher should know. The new book actually takes these and increases that to 99 studies every teacher should know. Can you just talk for a minute or two about this new book then, please, Brad? Yeah, um, I mean, the the short answer is I always wanted to do a book that had a lovely pink front cover. Uh, <laughs> and so this was my... Uh, this was my chance for that. Um, but the reason why we actually updated it is literally the day after we published the last book, uh, I read a study that I just kind of fell in love with and I was gutted that we didn't have it in the first book. And I think that's the nature slightly of research is we're always finding out new things. Um, so this one was about how to de- design the perfect multiple choice test, which I thought was just like really interesting. Uh, so there's always these new stuff coming out and also I wanted to find some of the studies that went to a bit more depth and detail. So in the first book, we talked about why retrieval practice or spacing, uh, the fact that it helps and it's good to do. But the extra studies allow us to talk about why these things happen and what's the mechanisms that causes these things. So it allows us to improve our own understanding or knowledge. So that's the uh, the updated version of 99 studies. Um, in September, we have our parent version and like parents' guide to the science of learning coming out um, because I'm, we're just hearing more and more schools say it's not enough for the school and the students to be doing this stuff. Actually, we need to harness the energy and expectations of parents so that they can help guide um, 
session. So, how many yeah, studies um, are in that, Brad? In that parent book? Sorry, say again, sorry? How many studies are in the parent book? Uh, so, that one we've got, we went for 77 and we sort of combined, we, we took the most applicable ones from the 99, but it's more about the parenting applications mm. uh, and implications. Um, and that's where stuff like the importance of sleep, uh, eating breakfast, um, how to have your child do flashcards for revision, all that kind of stuff kind of comes to the fore on that one. Are you using some of your own examples within there? <laughs> uh, to be honest with you, uh, I, in terms of my parenting, I literally just copy what my wife does. She's like a <laughs> wizard when it comes to parenting our child. So I basically just listen and watch and then copy her, really. So she's hoping it'd have the bandwagon effect then. <laughs> yeah, something like that, yeah. <laughs> much for talking with us today it's been so interesting listening to you speak and elaborate on some of the studies that we've looked at in our in our book club so I just want to say thanks so much for giving up some of your time to speak to us again again <laughs> third time <laughs> we are like groupies over here <laughs> honestly it's um it's so nice uh, generally because all we wanted was we love the discussions around research and how it applies and the stuff getting out there um, so thank you for including in part of your book club and, and for inviting me on the podcast. Honestly, it's, it's been a pleasure. Well, I'm sure we'll be in touch with you again. <laughs> so, uh, Sounds good. Good luck with the new book and uh, the parent book. I'm sure it will be a great success. Thank you so much, guys. Appreciate it. And, and thank you guys for listening as well. That'll be the end of our first series. I know it's only been a mini-series, three episodes, but I hope that you've enjoyed them, found it useful, and been able to have some takeaways that you could start to implement in your own practice, reflect on over the summer. And then we're going to take a break over the summer, recharge our batteries, harass some more people to join our podcast. Probably Brad again. <laughs> and come back with uh, some interesting debates and conversations.